Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can read along as well as hear the teaching. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and yes, I do know I'm jumping several verses in chapter 1. I don't like them. I didn't want to preach it. <laughs> but we'll get back to that, Lord willing, next week. But I'm going to go a little different in how we're looking at all this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these verses that you in your infinite wisdom have put in your book to speak something important to us as a church, as a whole, to our lives individually. We pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, giving a fresh sensitivity, Lord, to the voice of your Holy Spirit this morning. We love to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts through this passage this morning by your Spirit. Equip us, encourage us, Lord, exhort us, all the things that this is intended to do to correct and change and fine-tune or make aware. Let all of that happen, Lord, as you continue to conform us into the image of Christ through your Word and through his, your Spirit. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And this passage of Scripture that really runs all the way through chapter 1 and through to the end of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is addressing two things. And the first thing as we examined last week, was related to the content of the gospel itself. And he wrote to the church at Corinth, and he speaks to us today, that we are never ever to change the message of the gospel, the testimony of God, as he calls it here, the message, the good news that God has for mankind that there is the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and a fresh start and a spiritual birth that is found by simply putting our trust in Jesus Christ 
and in what he did for us through his death upon the cross. Because no matter what religious men and women or so-called intellectuals think of that gospel, it is perfect as it is. That gospel is born out of the infinite wisdom and power of God. And in our passage here this morning, the Apostle Paul moves from addressing the content of the gospel to now addressing our presentation of the gospel to the world around us. How to preach the gospel, how to herald the gospel and make it known to people. What better place, really, to address this subject than to the church in Corinth? Because it was a Greek city. They were not only very much in the wisdom, not very much into what is new, what tickled their ear, what had they never heard before that somebody is speaking now, but they were very, very into oratory. They were very, very into public speaking, the ability for a man or a woman to come into a setting and through their oratory ability to not only communicate something, but to do it in a way that would entertain and amuse and keep attention and dominate a room. So they were into wisdom, but just as much they were into presentation. Not only what was said, but how it was said. And the temptation for these Corinthian Christians was that they would then take these same methods by which the Greeks orated their wisdom and then carry them over to the presentation of the gospel. And the same temptation remains today where pastors and individual Christians in general are made to feel that we must present the truths of God to the pagan culture all around us in a way that they are familiar with, that we must adopt their methods for communicating truth. And so, the pastor rides down the center aisle of the church on his Harley Davidson in order to gain the full attention of the congregation before preaching the gospel. Because in his heart of hearts, he does not believe in the power of the gospel to arrest the attention of a hearer who the Holy Spirit has spent years and months and weeks and days preparing to hear that gospel. Or the ACDC song, Highway to Hell, is sung by the worship team on Easter Sunday morning for the same reason. Or the verbal coarseness and vulgarity and profanity of the culture is adopted by the pastor in order to impress the audience with his own worldly wisdom and his own worldly experience 
and to let the pagans in the room know that really he's no different than they are. And many other things like this are going on today related to the presentation of the gospel to a lost world. Many things that we find it hard to envisioning Jesus doing in the presentation of the gospel and his earthly ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, is one of the most alarming verses for any pastor, any Christian, as it relates to all of this. As we minister in this Corinth called the United States of America, and it certainly alarms me. Let me read the verse to you. For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul said, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, and then here it is, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Somehow, the greatest three events in human history, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has for mankind that cost the very death of His Son to provide it to us, that somehow we are able as Christians, if we fall prey to the trap, to present that gospel in such a way that the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, that scares me. That alarms me that I have the capacity, if I present the gospel solely in my human wisdom, that I can remove the effectiveness and the power of the gospel in a human heart if I present that gospel in a carnal, unspiritual way. And yet it's true. How does it happen? Number one, by changing the gospel itself by attempting to improve upon it, by mixing it with my own wisdom. And this has been done throughout all of church history, right on into our day. A perfect example of it today is what goes on in most of the liberal denominations that identify themselves with Christ and their so-called wisdom that they add to the Word of God or an attempt to explain away the Word of God. And they end up making Christianity a moral code to live by rather than something that speaks of the provision of a salvation that we must trust in. And they reduce Christianity to the means by which God makes good people better rather than the truth of the matter that the gospel has been provided in order to make dead people alive spiritually dead people alive. But we can also rob the gospel of its power and its effectiveness by presenting it in such a way that people's faith is placed in the wisdom and the oratory skills of the speaker rather than experiencing the demonstration 
of the Holy Spirit and his power. And so as a result, we notice that the Apostle Paul determined, he says in verses 1 and 4, he determined to come to them to share the testimony of God, that is the gospel. This is how he came to them, determined to share that testimony of God concerning salvation to Corinth. Do you notice in verse 1, he said that he did not come to them with excellence of speech. He did not want their faith in Christ to be based upon his speaking ability, his eloquence, his oratory skills. It isn't that the Apostle Paul determined to be a poor speaker or a poor communicator of God's truth, but he wasn't going to buy into the pressure of the culture in Corinth and the culture that exists today that he needed to be eloquent in order to an, attract an audience and then to impact that audience. And so when Paul came to Corinth, Paul was himself. And every preacher of the gospel ought to be himself or herself, whether in a group setting like this or in sharing the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. There's no need for affectations or artificiality in our lives in presenting the gospel. And in being ourselves, some people are just going to be a little bit better at public speaking than others, and all of that is okay. We just need to be who we are. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest Christian pastors in the history of church history. And he was a tremendous and gifted speaker. But he was who he was. And that's who he was. He didn't try to be something else. He just was who and what God had made him to be. George Whitfield, one of the most famous evangelists in the history of the world and certainly in the history of the United States of America, bringing one of the greatest revivals that America has ever known. He would travel on horseback from one city to the next. And when he would show up, word would go out. I mean, people are doing what they're doing. George Whitfield is coming. George Whitfield is coming. And they would come by the tens of thousands and fill these fields in order to hear the gospel preached by George Whitfield. And he had a tremendous ability just in who and what he was to capture a group that size and then to communicate that gospel. I think about biblically and the, the biblical record of Apollos. Apollos was a man who was a content man through and through. He delivered the goods when he preached the gospel and he taught God's word, but he was also very eloquent. He, had, he was the, this beautiful combination of having the content and the ability to communicate it. And there are men and there are women that are like that, but they were simply being who and what they were. They weren't trying 
to be something or someone that they weren't in order to move their audience artificially through some kind of learned behavior. One of the most uncomfortable environment you can ever put me in, and I've listened to thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of Bible teaching and listened and watched and been in rooms like this and for decades now. And probably the most uncomfortable thing that can happen to me in a room like this is when the person who is delivering the gospel or the word of God, if they have taken on a style or an affectation that is not their own. They are not being who they are. And I've done it. I'm not better than anybody else. But it still makes me uncomfortable. And sometimes we do it out of our own insecurity. We don't believe that with God's calling is His enabling and who would ever listen to us? Who would ever? And so we look to those that we esteem highly or we see God using in a certain way. And there's that tendency then to take on their characteristics or to become a very poor imitation of, of them. And so sometimes we will do that while we're still trying to figure out who we are and coming to a confidence that God will add everything he needs to to his calling on our lives to make us successful. And that kind of person will always ultimately outgrow that. But then there are others who learn all the tricks of the trade because they have seen others appear to use them successfully. And so they begin to take on all of these mannerisms, all of these ways of speaking and all. And not only in the world, but even within parts of the body of Christ, there are certain learned behaviors that almost seem required for success. There's a certain voice. There's a certain cadence. But I don't pick up the phone and say, hello, this is Damien Kyle. You see, he doesn't talk like that anywhere else. Why does he talk like that up here? He's not being himself. Or you develop a tick of some kind, you know, that's kind of a... Everybody gets memorized by the tick, and there's the cadence and the tick and the whole deal, and it's just, that person didn't come up with that on their own. They learned that somewhere. Because they think, if I adopt this, this form that it will make me accepted in this environment and somehow it's required in order for my presentation of the gospel to be powerful. And it's a strong pressure that is there. And I'm not making fun of anybody. I just want us to notice how these kind of things are not just out in the world, means by which to manipulate or to work a crowd, 
or to move a crowd, but they're very, very well entrenched within the church itself. When I was in the eighth grade, memories like the corners of my mind. <laughs> At Ridgewood Junior High School, there was an art teacher there. And when I was in the eighth grade, it was the season of MOD, M-O-D. That whole thing was just breaking out in a big way. So you had the desert boots and you had the flares and you had the, all the whole thing, the whole MOD deal going on. And it looked great on an eighth grader, but it didn't look good on that teacher that taught art at Ridgeview Junior High School. She was way too old to be wearing those mini skirts that short. And kids are sharp. Kids know when someone is trying to do something that they can't do in order to be accepted or that whole kind of thing, and it never works. Because we never expected her to be 13 years old. We expected her to be our art teacher. We expected her to be different. In fact, it made us very uncomfortable when she wasn't willing to be different in a needed way, but found it necessary to come and be like this. Now, I have a problem. And the problem that I have is that I've been old all my life. All my life I've been old. Always. But the world still expects the church as much as they may hate it, as much as they may disparage it and slander it and reject it, when the time comes that they need it, they don't want a watered-down version of the world that they now, at this point, are desperately trying to escape. They want to come into an environment that is different from the Corinth they're trying to get out of. They want to see a different kind of person. They want to hear a different kind of truth. They want to see that God does make people entirely different fashion, a diff entirely different kind of person than the way that the world fashions. And they're not looking for world light when they come to church. They're looking for sincerity and honesty, us being who we are 
and a love relationship with the Lord. The pressure that's on pastors today to move people through excellence of speech is immense. And the reason that the pressure is so great today, like I have never known it before, not in this church, is because the spirit of Corinth has invaded the church board and it has invaded the congregation as well. And it must be resisted. For our sake, it must be resisted. The only question that needs to be asked is, do we hear the voice of God through this person? That's the only qualification that's required. Not all of this other stuff that's a thing of that's Corinth out there. We've got to become Corinth so Corinthians feel comfortable being Corinthians in this environment, that whole thing that's going on. Instead of looking and saying, does this man or does this woman have a relationship with God and do we hear God's voice through them? You notice second in verse 1, he didn't come to them with excellence of speech. In other words, he didn't show off his intellect, though Paul was nothing short of brilliant. Even among this, even within the secular world, the Apostle Paul is esteemed to have been one of the greatest minds in the history of the world. Even the secular world acknowledges the greatness of the intellect that God gave to the Apostle Paul. Now, again, this doesn't mean that every Christian should not in any way use their intelligence in any way in their Christian service and in the preaching of the gospel. But what it does mean is that a Christian never comes to think that he or she can ever produce the conviction of sin and a commitment to Christ and another person based upon his own intellect, independent of the Holy Spirit. This is the pastor or the Christian who will attempt to use everything but the Scriptures to convince people of their need for salvation and of God's provision for that salvation. We see it all of the time, where a person will take and they can talk for an hour out of their own wisdom concerning salvation and never approach the power that comes with quoting but a single verse from the Bible that has to do with salvation. And this is the kind of preaching or gospel sharing or teaching that's filled with all kinds of words, but it lacks Scripture. It lacks the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says... And I am glad that my Christian heritage is one where I have had around me all of my Christian life men and women who have understood the power of the Bible from their own life. 
and have declared in conversation, the Bible says, I think of two men in particular, I could think of so many, one at the very beginning of my Christian life in Napa, and then another that I came to know here. You couldn't enter into a conversation with them about anything, except that they would say, the Bible says, or Paul said to the Corinthians, or Paul said to the Ephesians, or First Thessalonians declares. You couldn't pull them into a conversation where they would go on and on and on doing some kind of an external processing of their own wisdom. They knew the power of the Bible, and these two men were incredible in the number of people that they have brought to the Lord. There's no need to defend the gospel or the Word of God. The important thing is to use it, and that's the only thing that the devil fears in our preaching of the gospel. He does not fear our intellect. He does not fear our intelligence. He does not fear our man-made methodologies. All of those things are powerless to save a single soul. He fears the Word of God coming out of the mouth the gospel coming out of the mouth of a child of God because that's the sword of the Spirit and he has no answer for it. When we speak on God's behalf, we are always either speaking out of our own wisdom or his wisdom. And Paul chose to declare God's wisdom and there's no better way to have people experience the wisdom of God than to declare what His Word says about whatever is being discussed. And what was happening in Corinth 2,000 years ago is happening all around us today where pastors feel the need, and even individual Christians, to demonstrate to the unsaved world we're smart too. We're smart just like you. Here's the problem. The world isn't smart. The world isn't smart. And we are not smart. We don't have enough smarts to bring a single person into the kingdom of God not collectively, we don't. Only God is wise, and only God is smart as it relates to these issues, and we are simply to deliver His message. Third, notice in verse 4, He didn't come to them with the persuasive words of human wisdom. Again, He didn't try to persuade them to put their trust in Christ based upon His own wisdom. But I want us to notice that this does not prohibit us from endeavoring to persuade people to put their faith in Christ for salvation. What Paul is saying is, I never did that under my own wisdom, but I did it in the power of God and the wisdom of God through the Scriptures. When Paul went on his multiple missionary journeys, he would come into a city, he would go into the Jewish synagogue, and we're told repeatedly that he would reason from the Scriptures for why they ought to put their faith in Jesus as the promised Christ. 
He reasoned with them. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It is a reasonable thing. It is the only reasonable thing in the whole world. When Paul then, as he would take them to the Old Testament Scriptures and, and show them concerning Christ, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures to put their faith in Christ. And when he dealt with the Gentiles, he did the same thing. Only he didn't deal with it from the law or from the prophets. He dealt with it from Genesis. When he went to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who had no biblical background at all, he still went back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, where God is the creator of the heaven and the earth. He introduced them to pe the people as the creator of the heaven and the earth and as the creator of them, and then he took them from that biblical place to then explain Christ to them. But it wasn't the persuasive words of his own wisdom. It was the power and the persuasiveness of the Word of God. Christianity is a reasonable faith, and we should never be, we should always be able to answer the question of the Jews and the Gentiles through reason, but God's reason, not our own. And when you watch the best apologists, they do that. There are people who have come to know Christ, and they are apologists, and I can't, I don't even know what they're saying. They're incredible. Or it's kind of like you go to a museum and you see this amazing masterpiece that's on the wall and you look at that and you say, I could never create that. I, I can barely appreciate it. And I do appreciate it. And the greatest apologists are people who are no longer impressed with their own wisdom, but they have sunk their intelligence and their brain into the depth and the height and the width of the glory of God's wisdom and His gospel and plumbed its glory and its beauty and then take it out and then lay it beside the feeble things that people worship in this world and how inadequate those things are compared to what Christ offers. But it's not the persuasive words of human wisdom. It is the Word of God that makes the impact. And you notice, fourth, in verse 2, that Paul determined not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when Paul came to Corinth to begin to preach them, he just kept it simple and he kept it clear. He aimed at their greatest need which was salvation and God's provision for that need, which is faith in Christ. And he didn't allow himself to get pulled into all of the intellectual discussions and debates that filled Corinth. And he didn't allow himself to get pulled into all of the politics and all of the injustices of Roman rule. And his preaching didn't read like the morning newspapers. He was determined to keep the main thing, the main thing that man's greatest need is for salvation. And he didn't allow himself to get pulled away from that into far lesser things. 
And then number five, notice in verse two, that all of this was done as a result of determination on Paul's part. He determined to be this way. That word determined is the key word in the verse. And that tells us that Paul could have wowed them with his intellect and with his speaking ability, but he deliberately chose not to. He could do the Corinth thing. It wasn't that he couldn't, but he chose not to do it. He made a conscious decision not to act or speak in any way that would distract from the simple message of the gospel. And in this regard, he was very, very successful, as is evidenced by the slander that some Christians in Corinth were heaping upon him as they opposed him. And Paul records something of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. This is the accusation being made against Paul. Paul said that they were saying, for his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. They were saying, Paul ought to stick to writing letters. He's no communicator. He can't grab a room. He doesn't know how to hold a room. He doesn't know how to handle himself in this kind of bravado, in this dramatic way that will pull the room in and hold it, the kind of things that they were so used to. But what these people didn't realize is that Paul could have done it, but chose not to do it for their sake. And then finally, as it relates to this point in verse 3, he reminds them and us of his emotional and physical condition when he came to Corinth. His condition when he came to Corinth, he came to them in weakness. He came to them filled with fear, not wanting to fail God but be faithful to God. He came to them in much trembling Phillips translates it this way, I was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather shaky. And Paul, by the time he comes to Corinth on his second missionary journey, he'd already been through a lot. It already included being imprisoned in beatings in Philippi. His preaching had created riots in Thessalonica. As an old British pastor once said in reading the book of Acts, he declared, everywhere Paul went, he created a revolution. Everywhere I go, they serve me tea. He then went to Athens in the idolatry in Athens. It broke his heart so much that the Bible says it deeply provoked his spirit. And then when he comes now to Corinth, he's pretty well spent. I mean, he's only flesh and bone. I think every servant of the Lord knows a little bit of this. In other words, Paul is saying there's no explanation for the establishment of a church in Corinth to be found in me. And he's telling them, you of all people ought to know that. Well, weakness and fear and trembling 
are not characteristics that were very highly esteemed in a speaker in Corinth. They weren't considered to be the characteristics of a man who could hope to accomplish anything significant. If somebody showed up, the pastor showed up at a church and said, listen, I've come to church here this morning and I haven't brought any excellence of speech and I've thrown out all persuasive words of wisdom and by the way, I'm not feeling very good. I'm filled with weakness. I'm filled with fear. I come in much trembling. If that was the introduction to any sermon, everybody would say, I'm not expecting much at this point. But then notice in verses 4 and 5, Paul then revealed to them why he had determined to come to them in this way. In verse 5, that your faith, that's the most precious thing we have, folks, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, if I can talk people into a faith in Christ based upon excellent speech and human wisdom, then someone smarter than me and more gifted in communication can follow me to that person and talk them out of it. But when someone trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins as a work of the Holy Spirit in their life, then no one will ever be able to come to that person with a greater wisdom or a greater power and talk them out of it because there is no greater wisdom or greater power than that possessed by the Holy Spirit. And when people come to faith, in Christ, because of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the message in their heart, then we can, like Paul, move on to the next city and know they will be okay because the Holy Spirit will always be with them. And as we simply preach the simple gospel to people, we give the Holy Spirit something to say amen to in their hearts, and He will be faithful to do that. Only the Holy Spirit can penetrate a human heart and convict us of our sin and confirm the truth of the gospel in our heart. No amount of human wisdom or dramatic flair can ever do that in a human life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That is a word for today, I'll tell you, not just a word for Corinth 2,000 years ago. All the Holy Spirit wants us to do is to play our small but vital part in all of this, and that is to simply and sincerely share the gospel with people, and when we do, He will take it from there. Someone says it'll never work. People are too distracted. You do, it will never work. You don't know 
what Corinth is like, you don't know, like God doesn't know. It'll never, ever work. People are too distracted. They are too, um, you know, mesmerized by the world. They're too indoctrinated by the world. It'll never work if you keep it that simple. But it did. It did work. And it worked in Corinth. And the very fact that a church was established in Corinth, in Corinth, was proof that what had happened upon their hearing of the gospel was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And it does the same thing yet today in a Christian's life. I would guess that most of us in this room who are Christians, we were not intellectualized into the body of Christ. We were not mesmerized by the dramatic power of some speaker. There was a point where some family member or some friend or some neighbor or some co-worker or some pastor or minister shared the gospel with us at a moment of great need and the Holy Spirit bore witness to our heart of the truth of the gospel, our need for it, and that our search was over. And then putting our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit now coming into our lives, we have something that we can never be talked out of or ever be orated or wisdomed out of because the Holy Spirit within us will always have an answer to such things. How many people have left a church service like this We'll do it all around the world today and hear the gospel, leave the service, go out to their car, and they know God spoke to them. They know that God spoke the truth to them of their need and of his provision for their need in Christ. And they'll even try and get into the car and start it and drive away, but they know that God spoke to them in the demonstration of the Spirit and in power. And they come back in and give their life to Christ. How many, we never see these things. We share the gospel and so often we never see these things because they happen then privately later where the gospel is shared with somebody and it looks like it came to nothing. And that person puts their head on the pillow at the end of that day and tries to go to sleep, and they can't go to sleep because God is bearing witness to the truth of their need and of God's provision for their need in the gospel. And ultimately, they get on their knees beside their very bed, and they put their faith in Christ. You know what your story was. 
And you know how God broke through your indoctrination and all of the distractions of the world out there and all of our personal history. And he spoke to our heart in a way that no other human being can. This is the way. Now walk in it. And that's a part of our history. And that's what the Spirit alone can do in a human life. The Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts with a power that no mere man possesses. And then we are able to have that confidence for the rest of our lives. We know that, yes, God used a human instrument in all of this, but it was God who was speaking to me. And Paul said, I never want to rob a person of that assurance. I never want to compete with the Holy Spirit or make a person wonder in that way. And so he presented the gospel in the way that he did. And so those, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, one of the great lessons of it, and there are many lessons, is just to share the gospel and do it with confidence. Don't be paralyzed by your own lack of eloquence or your own lack of knowledge. Don't have an inferiority complex, you know, as we compare ourselves to who and what in the world. But with the confidence, we're to have the confidence that if we just take that gospel and if we'll share it, the Holy Spirit will bear witness to its truth in a human heart. And if they trust in Christ based upon that witness of the Holy Spirit, he'll begin something that's based on his wisdom and his power in their lives, something that is eternal. So the exhortation, and it's an important one, the exhortation concerning the content of the gospel and not messing with it. It's perfect as it is. But then the exhortation as well related to the presentation of the gospel. To do it simply, to do it sincerely, and then leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. Our lives being an evidence that he knows how to take it from there. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, here's what God wants to speak to you. He's got good news for you. We need good news, don't we? The world needs good news. God's good news is the best news. But the bad news is this. You're a sinner. You've been less than perfect. And your sin has separated you from a relationship with God, the very relationship that you've been created for and without which Nothing in life will satisfy and nothing in life will make sense. But the good news and the light of the bad news and the words of Jesus is that God so loved the world, including you, that he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross as a full and satisfying payment for your sin. And that whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting 
life. And that's the gospel and the message for you. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God here this morning, the relationship that you've been made for. It's all there for the asking, all there for the receiving. Everlasting life, forgiveness of sins. Somebody may sit in the room today, and I have no doubt someone does. So I'm all for everlasting life, but my needs are a little more immediate. I hate who I am. I hate the life that I've lived. I hate where my decisions have led me. I'm living a life that is nothing like I wanted to live when I dreamed as a little boy or a little girl of ultimately becoming in life. And here I am living within the skin of a person that I hate more than anyone else in the whole wide world, and I'm in desperate need of change. And God will not only forgive your sins, and He will not only give you everlasting life, but He will come into your life this morning by His Holy Spirit, and He will give you a new nature and make you into a completely different person. And you're, fill, you're sitting in a room that are filled with people like that, that he's already done that. There's hope for you, and that hope is found in Christ. Come to him this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. We give you praise this morning, Lord, for your gospel. We would never think of trying to improve upon it. It has changed our lives and our eternities, and we say thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that you would protect our own individual hearts and protect this church. We're as prone to anything as anyone is. Protect us Lord, from the persuasive words of human wisdom. Protect us from oratory or any kind of thing that competes with the work of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, denies you the opportunity to bear witness to your truth in human hearts. Thank you, Lord, for people that you touched to share your gospel simple and sincerely with us and how you bore witness to that message, delivering us into the life that we enjoy and give you praise for every day. And Lord, we want to be that same instrument in your hands for this generation and this world. Protect us, Lord. Inoculate us against these things that are going on all around us. Through your word, Lord, both last week and this week, and your letter to the Corinthians. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.